Coming up on Tech Nation, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Matt Richtel turns tech noir thriller fiction writer A.B. Jewell in The Man Who Wouldn't Die. From Silicon Valley values to venture capital lingo to the habits of the newly tech rich, all in San Francisco. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about the health benefits of unwearables, also called ambient technology. This is technology all around you that you think is doing one thing but could do another, like keep you in good health, detect that your health is declining, and even tell if you've had a serious accident. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2013, with the iPhone just six years old, futurist Alex Pang wrote The Distraction Addiction, getting the information you need and the communication you want without enraging your family, annoying your colleagues, and destroying your soul. At the same time, I noticed nobody complains about standing in line anymore. That's true. And I think that's an example of the ways in which technologies can help make our lives easier. Though the problem that I think we often have is when those uses start to creep into other contexts, places where we should be uh, sort of paying attention to kids or people at the dinner table or our work. When you add up all the time spent interacting with devices, that comes out to about four months a year. And Granted, some of that time is is multitasking, right? You're checking your email while you're watching TV. Um, It does not, however, include games, which, depending on who you are, can range from zero days to the whole rest of the year. But it's not just about time, of course. It's also about the number of interactions you have. There are lots of people who check email three dozen times a day. Um, But it's also... 36 times a day they check their email. Yes, 36 times a day, you know, or to pull it out of a stoplight when you get bored at a meeting, those times add up. It's really pretty amazing. But it's also about the way in which these technologies kind of insinuate themselves into literally our bodies. You know, there's this phenomenon called phantom cell phone syndrome, which is the feeling of your cell phone going off, you know, buzzing, even though you don't have it in a pocket or on your body. Ringtones are, of course, designed to be noticed. Um, they are often designed also to sort of play in a way that interrupts your attention. This is, after all, you know, the purpose of an alarm or a ring. And the downside of that is when you're overexposed to them, when they work too effectively, they can do too good a job of breaking the flow of your attention and forcing you to spend you know, several minutes getting back on task, even after you've had maybe only a very, very short phone call. I mean, you speak of the the Buddhist concept of monkey mind, everyday, undisciplined, jittery mind. Lots of people feel that way when they're off purpose. And, and not only that, I'm thinking of all kinds of things, and I'm feeling all kinds of things. And the feelings then take me to other places as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that the idea of the monkey mind is valuable because it reminds us that this kind of problem is actually a very, very old one. You know, even though smartphones are only, what, six or seven years old now, they have an an incredibly short time gone from being novelties to being part of our everyday life. It is 
easy to think of the problem of electronic distraction as an incredibly new thing. But what the monkey mind, which is an ancient idea, tells us is that it's not just our devices, but ourselves that sort of are at issue. That part of what's going on is that these devices are really good at tapping into a natural ability we have to self-distract, to free associate, to jump from one thing to another. In a, and however, the other important thing that sort of the long history of the monkey mind teaches us is that there are ways of dealing with the problem of self-distraction, of worldly distraction, that are very, very old. You know, Buddhism is 2,500 years old, and contemplative practices in Christianity and Islam and Judaism have developed over the course of you know, thousands of years. These problems really aren't new, and it, we also don't live in a world in which there are no solutions, you know, in which you have to give up the idea that you can have time to yourself, time to concentrate, time to focus, that there are ways of dealing with this that we can learn to adopt or adapt for modern purposes. At the time of this 2013 interview, futurist Alec Pang was talking about his book, The Distraction Addiction. He has since gone on to write Rest, How to Get More Done by Working Less. So I guess this means put down your phone and take a nap. I'm all for it. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, journalist Matt Richtel returns via his pseudonym, A.B. Jewell. This time, he's not covering science, technology, and business for the New York Times, but rather he's here with his novel, The Man Who Wouldn't Die. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about the health benefits of unwearables, ambient technology all around that keeps us healthy. And now, Matt Richtel. I mean, and now, A.B. Jewell. Matt, welcome back to Tech Nation. I mean, A.B., welcome to Tech Nation for the very first time. Thank you. I think I need to understand your introduction. <laughs> well. <laughs> Do you know why I took a pen name, Moira? Why? That's the next question. I took a pen name. That's what Moira's talking about. Because I could not take a pen height and a pen weight. I wanted to go about 6'2", 195, oh. and live out my basketball fantasies. Is that who A.B. Jewell is? Uh, A.B. Jewell, I, I have not, A.B. Jewell's a pen name. I have not assigned any physical characteristics. <laughs> what is the A and what does the B stand for? Daughter's middle name, Anne, uh -huh. A. Son's middle name, B, Benjamin. Wife's middle name is Jewell. That's Jewell with two L's. Yes, I... I totally know how to spell my wife's middle name. <laughs> She'll be pleased to hear that, Matt. <laughs> I think I may have misspelled it in my pen name. Oh, you mean only one I think L? it's the one L in her. Well, maybe Anyway, she... it was nice to be married while it lasted. <laughs> while it lasted. I'm announcing my Great. divorce yeah. here on Tech Nation. 
<laughs> oh, she'll forgive you. She'll, she's a great gal. She's she too is busy a, to worry about She is, All of this is true. <laughs> now, you've written you know, fiction before. You, you write nonfiction books. You write for the New York Times in the long yes. form constantly. Yes. And you've written novels before. But why a pen name now? Well... You write books, have written a book, yeah. may well write another one, which I get to ask you about after the, oh. after when I Everybody, skewer you. We've already had the negotiation. He's going to ask me three questions at the end of the interview. This is pretty terrifying. I yeah, ask, and they're but... going to be extremely inappropriate. Oh, well, no, they can't not. be too inappropriate because <laughs> we're going to air them. <laughs> well, I, I've written a lot of stuff as we've talked about and you've had me on before. I, I am a little bit filterless. This thing that I've written, this piece of fiction, is so unusual for me uh. that HarperCollins, William Morrow, its imprint that has been gracious enough to continue to allow me to write for money. <laughs> They'll let me write for free, but they continue to support me. They said, this is so unusual for you, so not serious on its face, so comedic that you don't get to use your real name. You've taken Silicon Valley so seriously for all these years. If you're going to make fun of it, sir, you're going to have to do it with a different name. So that's where we, that's where it started. That's how well, it started. I have to say, you know, Dashiell Hammett had its, has private eye, Sam Spade. Yes. And you've reincarnated sort of this whole milieu in, uh, in Silicon Valley, San Francisco, tech noir, private investigator, Fitch. Fitch. Should I give the big reveal about Fitch or should I not? Go ahead. Okay. Here's how this book started. So this is a detective noir send-up of Silicon Valley and its sheer and complete madness. <laughs> yes. And, we'll talk about that. <laughs> and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about that. We, But in the traditional vein of noir, there was always a detective who spoke little, sometimes with his knuckles. And seemed to be the only sane person in a world riven with greed. Even if you go back to like the Maltese Falcon or any of the greats, even though it wasn't about the computer chip, there was always somebody, often a femme fatale involved, who was trying to get more than they should have got through some nefarious means. That's the plot. That's the plot. That, usually, you know, Dashiell depended on it for sure. It's there you go. So I'm getting my haircut. I live here in San Francisco, despite writing for the New York Times. But this distance explaining my sanity, uh, possibly also the irreverence. And I get my haircut in the Castro for years. My barber's name is Tom. He's since got too expensive for me, Moira. We could spend a half hour on that. You're back to budget cuts, huh? <laughs> We're doing, we got a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old. Okay. Got to survive in the city. So I would get this good haircut. And by the by, I got to know Tom. And Tom was a gay man who was very conservative. Not, I don't think, like deeply right-wing conservative, but raised Catholic, hewed to his religious beliefs, kept in with the church. And he was a tough guy who was married to an even tougher guy who used to work for the ATF. 
Remind me, the ATF stands for alcohol, tobacco, that's it. and firearms. firearms. So Tom's those, those are tough guys because they're they put those three things together for a reason. Right, right. <laughs> this is not like chocolate chip cookies, bunny, and firearms. <laughs> no. This is alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. And Tom's partner was described to me as this huge head knocking arms toting guy who broke up arm dealing gangs internationally. And I was like, boom, someone's got to write that character. Oh, he, he gets a slot. He gets a slot. He's got to. And that, for better or worse, Moira, this is all it takes my muse to get going. I probably left with half a sideburn still uncut <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because I was like, that thing That's has good. to get written down. That's yeah, good. I got to get going. <laughs> so I began with the idea that we would have your quintessential noir, Irish Catholic, San Francisco detective – and you actually don't find out until midway through the first handful of chapters that he's gay. You find out Terry's a man. And it is never made anything of in this book, which was a tiny little act, I suppose. It's too audacious to say, Moira, but a tiny little act of civil rights in the sense that to the extent this could be neither here nor there, just a piece of the story, I thought that that would be interesting. I do not want to claim to be the first to have created a hard-boiled gay detective. They're out there. I hope Fitch is one that endures. I have to say about that is that so many people say, well, in San Francisco, you guys are just crazy. You'll do anything, whatever. But you've captured some of the current zeitgeist of the town. It's not unusual to find same-sex married people. All over the place. It's not even comment. Of, it, 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 you it's not even worthy of comment now. It's just, this is just our lives. And, you know, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, if you, it was not that long ago, and it is so in many places. I had a crazy experience. I was at a bookstore in the Midwest that I really like. And they were, I went in to sign copies of my previous books on a road trip the family was on this summer, told the folks at the counter about The Man Who Wouldn't Die, which is the book we're discussing today. And I told them that it was the spoof with a gay detective. And Moira, remarkably, my eyes are still open because of this. The female behind the desk gave it to the man behind the desk who'd previously noted that he was gay and said, I think this one's for you. And I was like, <laughs> if you guys could see in the studio, I yeah. was laughing and I made, uh, I made a sound like D-Day just happened in my His head. head exploded. <laughs> as if to say, well, that's only relevant. Well, trust me, it is the exact opposite is the point of this book, that it's just part of the wallpaper of this town. It is. That's a great way to put it. And the wallpaper of Silicon Valley, which actually stretches into San Francisco, we, everybody's yes. drinking the same water here. Yes. You know, it starts on the cover. There's just this little quote. You'd miss it if you don't know what you're reading. It says, in this town, murder is just another exit strategy. And if you're anywhere in the neighborhood here, 
we're constantly using the term exit strategy. Exits. So, you know, it's like, what's your exit strategy? I thought we just came here for a beer, you know? Right, <laughs> it's like, right. There's really this. only two conversations. There's three conversations in San Francisco, for those of you who are not here. One is, what's your exit strategy? Meaning... Will you be acquired for a large sum of money? Will you go public for a large sum of money? Or do you have another job offer where you can feel superior to your prior job offer because you make a lot of money? That's your exit strategy. Number two is constantly monitoring the value of your real estate. Oh, I'm afraid that's it. Yeah, that is a constant, constant thing. Constantly going out to Zillow, constantly going to Trulia. Yes. And then some people actually look up other people's addresses. Just Some people, Moira. Competitively. It's a compulsion. There's a, there's a part in this book where the realist, this town, can I say something um, See, inappropriate remember, on we, the good side you, of it? What you can do is, remember, we can edit this. So okay. if I go up, then you just retake okay. it. And well, we'll, I just yeah. want to tell you where I was conceived. Where were you conceived? I was conceived. I, actually, let me let me just let me just say that. Really, I've never asked that question in my twenty thousand years of interviewing. Where were you conceived, Matt? <laughs> Moira, I was conceived in the hate. You're kidding. No, before it, it was the hate. Before it was the hate, Ashbury. When when in the in the in in the full bloomage, my parents, hippies from Berkeley, Moira, and this was back when protests were about such things as civil rights, the Vietnam Not War. More. Yeah. But now in this book, the the first protest um uh that Fitch comes across, these are fippies. Yes. They are P H I P P I E S. Fippies. Yes. Not hippies. They're fippies, fippies because they're protesting injustices with their iPhones. Specifically, they what do they want? They want extended store hours, Sundays and Mondays. At the Apple store in San Francisco. They feel this has become an injustice that Sunday doesn't have extended hours. This is the first protest he comes across. And we were talking about real estate. The second protest he comes across are realtors. Now, remember, just to ground the San Francisco, we protested. We. I was embryonic. <laughs> you were protesting from conception. Yes. <laughs> I want out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they wanted out of the war. They wanted inclusion for civil rights, but the real estate brokers who are protesting now along uh, Van Ness, they want more inventory. When do we want it now? Because, gosh darn it, how can you maintain the Tesla if you can't sell another home? Right. And and real estate brokers are literally going past houses, knocking on doors, saying, do you want to sell your house? We, ha we have someone who would like to buy your house. And it's hard not to read those because you just looked at Zillow and you know what it might be worth. And here's the third thing, Moira, that we all talk about. Now, your kids are grown. so you. But probably, they have kids. But so, they have kids. Yeah. We talk about what schools our children are going uh, to. Oh, schools, yeah. Ad nauseum. We have the highest class problems in the world. Not only are we not worried about whether we will starve. We are worried about whether the food our children get at their private schools is organic and gluten-free. So, so in the book, the natural extension of this is that people are so worried about getting into the correct school that on, on any promising first date, they immediately freeze their egg and sperm and apply to a free place uh, – a free place certified pre-kindergarten. And Fitch, 
is called upon by his neighbors to help them get into such a school. Well, it's absolutely true. I didn't know how early that was, but I do know at birth that they get on the wait list. Yes. At birth, they, for particular, they call them feeder schools. Yes. These are nursery schools, which are feeder schools to kindergartens. And the, I mean, it just, it goes, it's it's pretty crazy here. It, you don't have to be that way, but lots of people are. And and what's what's interesting about it, for those who are listening around the country and who are not here, I mean, I would say about this place, and Moira, please either disagree vehemently, agree vehemently, whatever you – I just – I'm saying – I'm positing this, just not paternalistically, that what happens is we get – this place, for all the advantages of it, can get spun up by competition and fear like no place. I mean, by way of example – with all the advantages many people have here, not everybody by any stretch, but that many people have here, the fear that your child will not get into the right college is so astronomically weird, and yeah. yet it is epidemic. Absolutely. You know, and it's funny what you're talking about, about terms about food. Uh, as just a case in point, uh, last January, I took 20 graduate students to Washington, D.C. for a week, okay. all part of our program here. And it never happened to me before, but I always say, gee, is anybody a vegetarian? Yep. That's usually the thing. And, and occasionally we'll get somebody who say, well, I don't eat pork, but, you know. We had so much gluten-free, vegan. We had things I hadn't heard of before. Yeah. And we trying to juggle feeding all these people on the fly. And finally, the last night, I got really... I just said, I've had it. I'm exhausted. I'm taking you all to an Irish pub that had like a pub menu. And I talked to them. I said, they need, we need a vegetarian option. And they're like, we could probably work something up. Like all the, all the vegetables we serve on the side, we'll put on a plate. I said, good enough. It's a free meal for these guys, you know? And so uh, even the, one of the, the TAs that was, were traveling with us came to me and he said, you know, we have so many people who are vegetarian, need gluten-free, need, you know, and I just said, you know, this is the deal. Order chips, you know, order French fries, do something. But, you know. You'll be okay. Yeah, like, but, but, but the punchline was, is that uh, everybody ordered, everybody you know, knew what the budget was and everything. And then I went to turn in the uh, expense for that meal. And, um, I was just like, this is really interesting because it all has to be very detailed out. And I, I unfold it. And every person but one ordered either meat or, I mean, they ordered they ordered things they claimed they didn't eat. Uh. <laughs> and the one that didn't actually had eaten a sandwich before <laughs> he sat down. He goes, I, did, I was just too hungry. I had this sandwich in my room, so I ate that. But I'll just have a little, you know, and I was like... You guys, what is all this? I had a it, my, it my favorite line I heard from balloon. a friend, a guy I played tennis with, said he was he was presently gluten free curious. <laughs> but you know what this goes under the heading of for me is high class problems. Yeah, and I mean one of the things I've thought about this book is, uh, and there's a lot to love about this place. We've been serious about it many times, um, and we take much of it seriously. But like what I've thought to myself is. We can afford to laugh here because Lord knows we can afford everything else. Right. Unless you're homeless. And well, then then look, we've got we've got really a wild dichotomy here. And I would draw I would draw a huge 
I'm glad you brought that up because this can come off as very cavalier. I'm talking about a segment of VC fueled, um, uh, venture capitalist fueled tech companies that, um, that seem to have unbelievable wealth or the ability to generate it. And actually to Silicon Valley's credit, they have begun to awaken to the side effects of some of the quote unquote innovation here. Universal income is a topic that's begun to be discussed out here to help with the displacement of workers who can who have lost jobs to technology. I do not. I've written a lot of serious stuff. This was a time to laugh, but your point's well taken, and I shouldn't sound this defensive about it. But my Lord, do I feel defensive. <laughs> You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Oira Gunn, and my guest today is A.B. Jewell. That's Jewell with two L's. You might otherwise know him as Matt Richtel, a longtime journalist with the New York Times. He covers science, technology, and business and won a Pulitzer Prize for his series on distracted driving, resulting from the use of cell phones, computers, and other technologies. You know his books, both fiction and nonfiction, and yet A.B. Jewell is here today with his Silicon Valley, San Francisco tech noir novel, The Man Who Wouldn't Die. Now, the one of the things that I just kept giggling about when I was reading this is how much of the Silicon Valley, San Francisco, techie world, the speak, as we say, breaks in, breaks in. And you already said fifties. I'm going to stick just to the to the first chapter. There okay. are many chapters here, just so I don't give anything away. Um, one thing that uh, I'd never heard before is a TELF, a T E L F. Well, that's because I made it up. Well, oh, okay. That was another question. How much did you make up? What is a TELF in your novel? Well, a TELF is uh, is a is a tech executive I'd like to fund, and the femme fatale who comes in is a tech executive I'd like to fund. And here in the valley, there's a lot of TELFs. These are people who have done a startup and maybe another startup. And they look like they might be a winner. Now, in this case, our femme fatale is more of a uh, self, uh, self-named self TELF. I'm not sure you'd want to fund her. Um, she may not need your money, as a matter well, of fact. Well, she is a billionaire. Yeah. But billionaires are always the best to fund. And they, yeah, and they don't spend their own money once they made the billion. Now, now they're going to spend your money. That would be sacrilegious. That would be. That's so one of the rules. Is, is among the made-up vernacular here. And we have metaphors which ring Silicon Valley, yammering like she's pitching a VC in an elevator. <laughs> this is the classic VC pitch, and yet it sounds so... So down to earth. <laughs> yes. Well, should we discuss what she's pitching? Sure. She's pitching murder. She believes this is the start of our book. This is the theme of a theme in the book. Fitch, look, here's the thing, Moira. Fitch is sitting there when his day starts and he just wants a good cup of coffee. And it's really hard here because you can't get a good black oh, cup no. of coffee. You can get a latte with echinacea in it. But that's not what he wants. I was literally emailed this morning from Starbucks about a new nitro brew with nano bubbles and you could have cold foam on it. And it was like all of these crazy coffees 
are here. And that's what that you can't get a cup of coffee. I just, Moira, I just wish from the bottom of my heart you wouldn't wait, make fun of nano bubbles. <laughs> <laughs> that's how my children take their baths every the night. Nano bubbles. You have too In much cold money. Brew. You have too much money. Oh, that's from it. your mouth. But I would like to. I would like to say that I also love the return of many noir terms, most especially the term haymaker. Yes, I, I haven't think, read it in a long time. Yeah, he really wants and needs to occasionally throw a haymaker, and he does. So wait, so she comes in the office. Oh yeah, and she says, "My dad's," been, and he's trying to get a good cup of coffee and get his expenses done on paper. And she says, "My father has been murdered," and he says, "Okay," and he can already tell she's a bit of a nut job. How could how what what makes you think so? And she says, "Well." He's been tweeping from beyond the grave. I've been speaking with Matt Richtel, a.k.a. A.B. Jewell, the author of The Man Who Wouldn't Die. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about the health benefits of unwearables, the benefits of the ambient technology all around you. Stay with us. Tech Nation, I've been speaking with A.B. Jewell, the pseudonym of Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times journalist Matt Richtel. A.B. Jewell is here today with his Silicon Valley, San Francisco tech noir novel, The Man Who Wouldn't Die. So wait, so she comes in the office. Oh, yeah. And she says, my father has been murdered. And he says, okay. And he can already tell she's a bit of a nut job. How could, how, what, what makes you think so? And she says, well... He's been tweeting from beyond the grave. Read tweeting here. Tweeting. I, I made up terms because... But you knew what you were talking about. You could, yeah, you she got knew so that, close. I called it tweeping because I, in retrospect, it was a mistake. Really what helps book sales is getting sued by Twitter. 
So oh. I should have left it. Should have left it all in. Yeah. Sued by everybody. One of the great things in this valley is a good solid lawsuit. And we'll talk later about maybe some of the law firms in this book that will help you with that. Um, but uh, but she says, my father has been murdered. He's tweeted from after the grave. And he says that Fitch says, OK, out. But then then she flashes something that's hard for a hard boiled detective to resist. And that's friends and family shares and says, listen, I got equity for you, pal. Can't turn down that kind of money when you're trying to buy Terry some, uh, you know, some nice guard stuff for the garden. And so he says, what gives? And she explains that her father, who is a character not unlike Jobs or the venture capitalist or my good friend, I'll give a shout out to him, Roger McNamee, who I play music with occasionally. Uh, We have a lot of legendary VCs, legendary tech people, some in the same person, you know, but we have them around here. We have them. And one of these characters has come up, has died, but not before he came up with the spirit box, which the daughter tells Fitch keeps you alive, your spirit alive after your body has gone. Now, for those who say... Uh, I really should be putting on fresh air right now. <laughs> Stick with me. <laughs> Stick because, with Matt. Oh, Terry's going mean, to beg for us. <laughs> yeah, he's going to beg. She's going to beg. <laughs> they, they, uh, they, you know, there's a move here called Singularity. Um, in, in Look Silicon it up. Google Valley. it. Yeah. Google it. It's a real thing. I, I've inflated it a bit, but the general idea is that you are mixing technology and biology, that these things will come together And one simple way to think about this is artificial intelligence. And in a way, that is a through line of this book. Has this captain of industry in Silicon Valley actually figured out how to live beyond his mortal days and or his analog days, his flesh and analog days, and has someone killed him for the innovation? And this is what he claims from beyond. And everything just goes from Palo Alto and its swanky neighbor Menlo Park, where all the venture capitalists, all the way up to the San Francisco. You're all over the place. We're all I'm all over the place. There's one of the reasons <laughs> is, you know, what's a trope in, in these things traditionally was the high speed car chase. But it's important to know you cannot have a high-speed car chase now in Silicon Valley because of the commute traffic. So he gets stuck <laughs> in a very dangerous, extremely low-speed car chase. No, no more bullet, you know. No. no more. And the, and Moira, the bad guys, knowing the what a premium is put on the difficult commute and parking situation, they no longer want like a Thunderbird with a big engine. They drive Mini Coopers. They all do. They're Be- all over this town. If it's not a Mini Cooper, it's a Tesla. Well, Those are your choices. But the, see, the bad guys are really smart, Moira. They don't get a Tesla because they're too hard to parallel park. Oh, there you go. Okay. You can't be bad if you can't park. Now, let me ask you this. Did you make this up? That I mean, people are always asking you to sign NDAs. And you go, I don't know. Yeah. There's a double NDA. The first <laughs> NDA is like a non-disclosure agreement. You sign that, and then the second one is a non-disclosure agreement that you sign the NDA. You made that up. I think I might have. I've forgotten, <laughs> and and I don't understand why you made me sign one when I came in here this morning. Oh, I made you sign two. No. Two. I think I think what I was so struck by the NDAs because. 
they are um they're a form of information warfare out here like yeah. like it's not this is what i want to say to people when they say you know you come to this company we'd like you to sign an nda the first thing you say is <laughs> well i'm a journalist so I'm here for the opposite reason of an NDA. But then you find out, and this is the real punchline, Moira, that the thing they're telling you you can't disclose is just not all that interesting. Yeah, you're <laughs> so, right. I'm telling no one. <laughs> right. One of the things that I think is extremely um, interesting about this place is this place has basically been a go- gold rush town. Since, from the start, from eighteen forty nine, people got here. Yeah, um, yeah, and and the the people drawn to this place I, on a serious level, I think beautiful, strange, elegant, crazy creatures are drawn here. Um, I think it's been that way since the beginning, and it may be at its. I mean, I sometimes see this place through the lens of an old time saloon and who might walk in. And we are inviting that in a way I'm not sure we have since 1849, because for a while the action spread around the country. It got sort of corporatized and industrialized. But as it's broken down again, people have just gone west. This is manifest destiny right now. And you better get your pitch out in an elevator before you hit the sixth floor, because otherwise Levi Strauss is moving on. They're moving on. Yeah. Moving on and moving on fast. It talks so much, um, not specifically, but you feel it in there about Silicon Valley, the whole idea of what are the values or lack thereof? I think we're very conflicted out here. Um, I think that there is a combination of grand ambition in, in the biggest sense that is in, that is so hard to untangle from the drive for wealth. And it, it is, I'm guessing, actually, that it's very much like Hollywood. But I would distinguish it, I think, from many, say, on Wall Street, where it's fairly plain that the idea, for even if you're the most well-meaning on Wall Street, you're still, the aim is wealth in the end for everybody involved down the, but here, the phrase is so often used, we are going to change the world. What is the place where we can change the world? Is it a health app? Is it a search engine? Is it a, uh, I, I don't know, go down the list. We're going to change the world. And that's what Steve Jobs said, but he had an open field run. <laughs> he had an open field run. Innovation. And I think, I think the captain who is murdered in this, he refers to um, what's happening now is um, incremental innovation. Incremental innovation. Something like that. That's this. right. There is, you can just do a little this, a little change. That's not really innovation. It's, it's not a paradigm shift. It's not something that came out of nowhere. We never thought about it that way before. We never built it that way before. And he's almost the voice, even though he's dead before you even open, get to page one, his, his idea of what really is innovation really permeates what's new versus what's just a little, a little, a little dot. Tweak. And I'll give you, tweak. and let me give a, let me give like a, could I give a graduated scale of innovation the way sure. I think of it out here or how we've started to think about it? A, a touch screen in your car is that lets you get the radio 
in without turning a dial and gives you access to more information is not really innovation to me. In fact, arguably, you are going backwards. That's one idea. Uber or, or Lyft gets much closer to an innovation in my mind, but it is in many ways the remaking of a taxi experience. I think, in a, for me, a much better fashion. You can make a case that there is some world-changing capacities to that. And then there's one more on top of it. And this is where innovation actually becomes very scary. And that's the, that's the automated car, the self-driven car that no doubt is going to be world changing for safety reasons, for economic reasons, for difficult questions about, um, uh, uh labor for all the truck drivers and how and we design where we live, all of those things. That one, the real change the world thing, is so scary that it's paralyzed policymakers to their toes. So I think we have to be careful about lauding ourselves for innovation. Some of what's happening is a more efficient making thing. But that's I want, not that's more incremental innovation. It's more incremental. And now it's better, faster, cheaper is incremental innovation, incremental innovation. And now I'm afraid I'm going to wax too serious. But may I? Sure. We'll just always cut you. Don't worry. About <laughs> you know, I later figured out, Moira, that of all like the five interviews we've done, you've never run a single one. <laughs> no, Who told true. him? Who told him? Not true. Okay, not true. We, we are wrong. <laughs> yes, go on. Um, well. One of the interesting stats to me about the United States right now is that people claim to be increasingly unhappy. And I think about the drive for efficiency and the fact that that is not the same thing as the drive for happiness. And even when we are creating more time in our lives through efficiency, it is not always spent happily. So one of the things I wrestle with in Silicon Valley is the idea that there's an inherent good with efficiency creating or innovation making, even that which is incremental. And yet the payoff on this platonic ideal is not exactly what we are implicitly telling ourselves. And in the book, Captain Don, who continues to tweet from the grave as Fitch has to solve two things. One, well, three things, really. What is the murder? You know, is he been murdered? Was he murdered? Yeah. Was he murdered? Is this, is he really tweeting from the afterlife? And then there's some subplots. But he, as he goes along this, Captain Don continues to tweet. And he starts to tell us lessons about just how seriously we ought to take ourselves and our ideas of innovation and whether that is leading to happiness and whether wealth is leading to happiness, where I have very little sympathy for us, those of us who have been blessed to to live off this off these changes is where I have little sympathy is the money or efficiency buys people time and they have choices and where it's where it gets exhausting is to listen to people who have enjoyed the fruits but complain and you can see why because they've made choices that continue to create stress to create unhappiness there's a little bit of an addiction cycle here to ambition that can be very dangerous. Again, I want to put this all in the context. Look, I've taken this place very seriously for years. There's a lot of good stuff to take seriously about it. But at some point I cracked and had to giggle a bit. Now, 
we get to this portion that never happened before on Tech Nation. You can see I'm kind of gritting my teeth here and mumbling. You get three questions. Okay. So, listen, i got to preface this, everybody. I am a powerful, deeply experienced investigative reporter. With the New York Times, you got a Pulitzer Prize and everything. I have that thing she Uh-oh, just said. Oh, what did you find? Yeah, <laughs> whatever she said. That's right. <laughs> so I'm going to grill Moira. No journalist to journalist. Uh, no, no, there's no, I'm not. Gloves I'm, are off. Okay. Gloves are off. Haymaker, um, here it comes. All right, yeah. here we go. Moira. Yes. Tell us about your new book. Oh. I really skewered her. Oh, man. That came from, I'm writing a book. And uh, you're not going to believe the name of the book. Tech Nation. I I just don't get where it's coming from. (laughs) Current working title is The Future of Normal. So so take me a little bit behind that title. What are we talking about? Well, the... The thing is, is that we, when when all of us grew up, and it doesn't matter whether that was 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 60 years ago, whatever you were born into was normal. And you kind of handle normal. You figured out how to be happy, kind of growing up being normal other than the growing up angst. And, you know, and as parents, you know, you're, you're trying to make things understandable for your kids, yes. comprehensible for your kids. Yes. And in fact, uh, then we get to being adults. We realize it's a lot more complicated. You got stuff coming at you left and right. But in addition to that now, we have all of this technology coming at us and at a rate that nobody could imagine. This is a ball that is just, you know, rolling and getting bigger and bigger. So do you have a thesis about how we should cope with that? Yeah. I think if we understand the nature of technology, that all technology fails... Um, it's just a matter of time and circumstance. I think uh, understanding that we can't test out the bad things in advance every time you put technology in the hands of a new person, even if they're not a technologist, they think of a new way to use it so the creators can't predict how it will be used. And I think once you understand that you can start to live with life in a whole better plane. You say, okay. Are you essentially saying don't get so worked up? I'm saying be smart about it. Be smart about it. Here's a great example. Um, And this goes back a few years, but it it tells you what happened. Um, Oh, airbags, really good in cars. Congress legislates or or, uh, regulates underneath the legislation. Got to have airbags in cars. Well, what happened is all the other ways that could keep a person safe in a car stopped being worked on. Mm. And everybody worked on airbags and then suddenly realized they're terrible for small children and they're terrible for people who uh, are But weak that's and, just small children, but, Moira. But, oh, just small children and the weak <laughs> and the old. Yeah, all of them. We can do without all of them, I'm sure. But the point is, is that they legislated or regulated a technology as opposed to changing the standards under which innovation could happen. Mm. And so there's just a few things like that 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 I'm looking at. And of course I haven't finished writing the book, but it's like how do we how do we figure this out? How do we figure out the fact that there's so much disinformation when our brains, we store all this information, but there's no tag that says, oh, this is false. This is true. It's like, how do we go about Moira, this? If how you do were, we live our if lives? I, if I was a VC and you just pitched me in the elevator, do you know what? You want to know what really resonated with me right there? Oh, what? 
it really resonated the idea of helping me or us conceptualize this world so that we can digest it a little bit better. And I don't mean each technological shift. I mean, digest our experience in a less, in a more sane fashion, because I do think we are, our heads are on a swivel um, and we do feel like we are not keeping up. Um, so I think that's really neat. I, I do have two more hard-hitting questions oh, for you, though. That was one question asked multiple. Okay. <laughs> All right. Two more. Two more. Mike. Okay. Number one, when we first sat down before the mics were on, uh-huh. you professed to being an excellent cook. I would like I said to know. I was a cook. <laughs> oh, sorry. I, you know, and I'm that's a, probably on tape. I'm, I'm a journalist. I make a lot of stuff up. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, you, you. I want to <laughs> just, I just want to help us get to know you better. What you would say your family says your best recipe is, and if there's any secret ingredient or other secret element to it. Well, here is. Uh, Here's something that actually comes out of the New York Times. I've actually found something that from uh, if you finish the, the sentence, I've New actually York found Times. something interesting in the New York Times. Well, what it was is it was it was shown to me by a friend of mine. She okay. goes, I think I think this is you. There's a fellow there wrote a whole section. She brought it to me, and she said it's called No Recipes, and it goes, oh. you know how to cook. You throw this in your. If you were to ask my children and their children, what does she cook well? And what was your what's your favorite thing? It's they'd say, well, it's the time she cooked this on that date, <laughs> because I kind of change it up, and you know, I was out in the living room too long, or I, I, you know, all of those things change. This conforms completely to my understanding of you. You are it does yes, because that cooking is a creative act. Mm-hmm. And you are one of those people who's like MacGyver in the kitchen. Yes. You like throw me the oregano. I need the salt shaker. I need a shank of lamb and give me two vegetarians. There you go. All right. Here's my final question for you. I'm ready. I'm ready. You got a book coming out. All right. Will you take a pen name? No. Why would I take a pen name? Well, because I wanted your name. Oh. <laughs> I think it would sell more books if it was called The Man Who Wouldn't Die by Moira Gunn. Oh, really? (laughs) Nah, it's too late. It's too late. Those contracts are in place. I would like hot off the presses with some ingredients you pull from your fridge. There you go. You got it. (laughs) Matt, thank you so much. My guest today is A.B. Jewell, better known as Matt Richtel. His Silicon Valley, San Francisco tech noir novel is The Man Who Wouldn't Die. It's published by William Morrow. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. On Tech Nation Health, we often speak of technologies you intentionally use and technologies that you wear on your body. But now we have another area to consider. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about the health benefits of unwearables, technology around you that can also keep you healthy. Well, Daniel, welcome back to Tech Nation. Great to be back. I have to ask you about this. We're always talking about this this technology, either strap on or last time or the time before it was like you put technology in your underwear, TMI. TMI Underwearables, right? Underwearables. Um, but you're talking about, look around you, there's all of this technology that exists that you don't consciously put on, but that's doing a lot of work 
it could tell a lot of things about you that you would want to make sure is being checked. Right. I like to kind of use the term sort of our digital health exhaust that could potentially be picked up picked up in all sorts of ways. You could think about it, again, as um, you know, unwearables or the term is often being used ambient technology to start sensing our vital signs, our behaviors. So let's use a couple of common examples. We've mentioned on the show a couple of times the idea that, that voice can be a biomarker. And clearly, yeah. while there are privacy issues, your Amazon Alexa or Google Home might be listening to you, but there are sounds in our voice that change if we're developing uh, early Parkinson's or obviously changes in our emotional or mental health or even signs of heart disease have been measured in voice that can predict who's developed heart disease. And triage voice lines have been manipulated to understand who's likely to have a mortality event. So you might have listened now, to what's your... a triage? Would you call it a triage medical line? Well, you're, in, in Israel, there's a, a health system called Clalit, and they've been uh, listening to the call-ins to their helplines when people call in with a medical issue. And they've been able to, using machine learning and AI, a company called Beyond Verbal, was able to tell who's likely quite sick and likely to die within the next couple months. So you might really want to pay attention to this caller. Call in. Call in, uh, call so, in now. So that's voice as a biomarker, which, again, can indicate acute and chronic changes. And then our, there's even the cameras, which are ubiquitous in our environment now. We're in the age of exponentially more powerful cameras. And just uh, uh, published in an academic journal in a startup recently is that the camera on your smartphone or laptop, which for a while has been able to pick up um, heart rate, has now been leveraging the ability to pick up blood pressure, hypertension. And high blood pressure is the number one leading cause of early death and morbidity around the planet. So wouldn't it be interesting if your your smartphone can be giving you a clue without doing much except watching your face? And another example, which was just announced and FDA approved in the summer of 2019, a company called BioBeat has come out with a, a bit of a wearable, but it can also pick up your blood pressure without squeezing your wrist through a... Um, through a, a process of electronics and, and imaging. So that's an example, again, of not having to wear a traditional blood pressure cuff to get something. Uh, a third example that is sort of ambient technology, we're in the age of Wi-Fi everywhere. Uh, a professor at MIT named Dina Katabi has developed basically a, a way to modify Wi-Fi um, to pick up the vital signs of multiple people in the same location and has a spin-off company called Emerald. Um, but what they're essentially able to do now is tell you know, an individual's behavior around the house. Where are they? Have they had a fall? Who's who? Um, uh, what are their sleep patterns? Maybe even light, deep, and REM sleep. So the combination of these sort of ambient technologies will give us a new picture on our uh, our health, uh, early signs of a problem. Let's say someone who might have, have a risk for a fall, changes in voice, which might be early signs of a, of a neurologic issue, and then ways once you might have a disease or challenge to keep you on track, reminding you to take your medications, uh, seeing how your sleep is going, having a way to track something as, as critical as your blood pressure uh, and make sure folks can take their medication. So this idea that we're going to move beyond the sort of wearables and sensors and even chips into, underneath our skin to this digitome of continuous data that if we mine it properly and are mindful of our you know, privacy <laughs> issues can be used in smart, powerful ways. The reason I'm chuckling here is because initially I was like, well, great, I don't have to put anything on. It just sort of happens with, you know, life as we know it, as we move through it in sort of the in the new technical age. And then I realized, well, what if you have like five, six people in your home or 10 people in your home? Who, who's, who's getting monitored for what? And, you know, you got the dog, you got the... 
<laughs> you got three cats. I don't know. And it's like it's going to take something to really get this all sorted out and to understand what to do in terms of boundaries within families, within relationships. You right. Know? That, cat, that cat, your cat hasn't signed their release form for their data. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But the cameras now, there's several approaches now. Uh, a local barrier company, I'm actually on the advisory board for board called Cocoon Health has developed a, any sort of camera can be modified with software to pick up the baby's uh, heart rate and respiratory rate and even analyze cry and movement. So that's a way that a camera can tell which kid it is if you have two in your crib like twins or another company called Kepler can also look at, let's say, um, folks who are trying to age in place, right? We don't want to go to nursing homes or assisted living. If your camera can pick up and tell that's grandma, that's grandpa, who's uh, hydrated, are they dressed, uh, have they had a fall, and tell who's who, even amongst the crowd, that's all really possible today. The challenge is how do we integrate that in in a way that honors uh, wishes, that gives you um, not too many sort of false alarms, and is something that we can learn from to really build a sort of health layer uh, around folks as they go through life's journey. Well, I'll tell you, I hit my knee yesterday, and there was about five minutes where I wasn't going anywhere, although I was kind of dragging it around because I had to get across the across the hallway there. And it's like if somebody was watching and alarms were going off, it would be like, it's okay. I'm okay. You know? Well, but often folks aren't okay. The, the most common issue, let's say for someone in their 80s or 90s, might be have a fall when they're living alone, break their hip, not be able to yeah, get to a phone and uh, be discovered the next day when it's too late. And there are some, you know, help, I fall and I can't get up, wear up, you know. Real ones. Uh, things Go to down. Folks. But no one wants to wear that around their neck, and at least <laughs> most folks don't want to. So now whether your ambient camera or Wi-Fi or your Alexa might be listening to you, and that sounds like a fall uh, or groaning. You can imagine right. ways to program that have, in. Have multiple parameters being, you know, put in there to say, okay, you know, it's like nobody's moving, went down, unlikely that you would not be moving at all in the bathroom, as an example, you know, start to put, do we hear anything, do, you know, so if you put multiple ones together, then you can probably ascertain how serious this is. And again, that's not science fiction, the, I've got the Gen 3 Apple Watch, and it can be programmed, I think if you're over age 60, uh, if you have a fall, and it can sort of detect what are the kinetics of an actual fall, you can't just sort of pretend to fall, and if you haven't gotten up, it can uh, text your kids or even call 911. So all that's becoming possible. The trick is how do you connect the dots? How do you regulate it? How do you pay for it? And how do you blend that into our sort of sharing and and now increasingly uh, privacy-concerned era? Oh, Daniel, I always count on you for serial number one. You're always right there. (laughs) Thank you so much. Hey, you take care. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Maria. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft is the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. The Exponential Medicine Conference 2019 is scheduled for early November at the Hotel Coronado in San Diego. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nocktrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. 
TechNation and BiotechNation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.